you start with the customer, always. So you start with that and work backwards every time. In today's Evertalk conversation, I'm speaking with Emily Foges, the chief executive of Luminance Technologies. Emily joined a young business and took it from four founders through to over 100 people with $100 million of turnover operating across the globe in just three years. We talk about the blended workforce, what AI really is, and how to deliver a successful automation project within your organization. Welcome to another uh, Zebra Talk conversation. I'm delighted today to be in conversation with Emily Foges, who is the chief executive of Luminance, which is a fascinating uh, technology company in the AI field, uh, particularly operating in the legal industry. And we'll talk, we'll talk, Emily, a bit more about about the business in due course. But I, I'm conscious that when we've spoken before and had conversations, we've we've come at it very much from a technology or a, a legal industry background. But the listeners to this podcast are also interested in in the people behind those successful businesses. And one of the things that struck me about your background was was not only the diversity of it, but some of the practical things that you've been involved in. Um, and I was really interested to, to to hear a bit more about some of the mentoring work that you've done working with young people. Um, is that something which which surprised you, how enjoyable it was to you, or was it something you felt it was a, a duty to get involved in as a successful businesswoman? Um, well, I was I was asked to do it um, because I was working close to the charity who would who were running this program, and they were looking for people who worked in local businesses because it was very much a locally focused thing. Um, so I was curious, I think, um, to see um, to see how it worked, and I think what surprised me most about it was how simple it was. So the idea behind it, um, the charity is called Spear. They're based in Hammersmith, um, and the idea behind it is that there are a lot of kids living locally to that um, to that organisation who come from families where nobody's ever had a job. So for them, coming out of school and trying to figure out what their career options are, they've really got nobody to talk to about it. And they've also got very weirdly unrealistic expectations about how it's going to go. So it's actually a very, very simple, straightforward thing to get involved in, which is you're just talking to people who have come out of school thinking, right, I've done quite well at school. Therefore, what I want to do next is work for the UN and have a Ferrari which, you know, obviously the first thing you've got to explain is those two things are mutually exclusive. But more importantly, you're going to start out doing some photocopying and that's not just because of who you are. That would be the case if you came from a middle-class background and got a degree out of Oxford University. You'd probably still start out in your career doing some photocopying. So don't think that that's just because of who you are. So really set a, resetting those expectations and helping them to understand what they're getting themselves into is all it is. Well, having grown up in the legal industry, I've got my master's in photocopying, so that totally resonates. Actually, they probably don't do photocopying anymore. Well, I, I mean, I, graduates. I, I, was, I, I bet they do. Um, I was thinking. I was thinking about um, you know actually that what you've just said in the con- in the context of the broader discussion about what the future workplace looks like, because I think there is a, a, a misconception, particularly amongst young people, and I don't just mean perhaps some of the the, the school age children that you might have been helping in the mentoring um, role, but also just more generally young people coming into the business. There is a. I think there there is a um, a lack of dialogue about what that future workplace might be, and and how that uh, the 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 role of of somebody in a workplace might change in the future. We talked a lot in the Zebra Project about this idea of the the blended workforce and the the, the interrelationship between uh, people and technology, whether that's AI, automation, or technology more generally. 
what's your sense in of of, of people's um, understanding of what that future workplace might look like, and 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 are you involved in discussions more generally about the workplace or simply about the AI technology that Luminance is developing? Both, I'd say. And it's probably a little bit like those kids in Hammersmith that there's this expectation that AI is going to create an environment where you just press a button and everything happens. And that's obviously not the case. And I always draw the analogy with Excel, which is, you know, before Excel existed, you know, accountants were doing a lot of the same stuff that they're doing now. It's just that it's a lot faster now and also a lot more foolproof now. And you wouldn't expect Excel to to replace your accountant. But by the same token, you wouldn't expect your accountant to think it's a bad idea to use Excel. It's still it, it's still the same person doing the same job, just using it's just a tool. So I think there are unrealistic expectations that we still see when we go out and talk to prospects for the first time about you know what AI is going to do for them. It's not going to take away the work. It is going to make the work a lot faster. I mean, really, really a lot faster. But that doesn't mean that you've kind of outsourced it. You're still doing it. So I think, yeah, it is a lot of that expectation setting. And, you know, it's a good thing, but it's not going to work in the way that you imagine it's going to work. Yeah, and I think we, we certainly the feedback we we get from from the communities that we work with is speed speed and efficiency is key. One of the key deliverables is is consistency, um, and I think consistency and predictability are becoming much more valuable commodities mm. uh, in in all aspects of the working world. And perhaps we can we can come back and talk about that when we think about what's you know what's actually valuable in in embracing these projects, which are not not always easy ones to start with. Yeah. That's probably a sensible place to to jump in and talk a little bit more about luminance. Um, luminance is a is a, a legal industry um, technology based on AI, patent recognition, um, and, and and trying to modernise the way that that lawyers and corporate legal departments and law firms interact with documents. Tell us a bit more about about the product, uh, how it's being uh, accepted in the market, how it's what's what's growing, what's what's popular with the product, and where you think it's going. So uh, Luminance is an artificial intelligence platform for the legal profession. And what it does, if you can imagine this, and it's always easier to see it in action. So it's interesting describing this on a podcast, but I'll give it a go. Um, So what it's doing is if you imagine you've got 100,000 documents in a data room and you're a corporate lawyer doing M&A due diligence. So you've got to analyze this set of documents to try and understand the nature of that business. You know, what's the level of risk in this business? How, what, what level of control is there over this business? Where are the opportunities? How does it really work when you get under the skin? So with Luminance, you'd upload that set of documents into the platform. And then what Luminance will do, um, our legal inference transformation engine will analyse those documents in terms of patterns in language. So that means a couple of things. First of all, it means it doesn't matter what language you're dealing in, because all language is pattern. And the next thing is it's looking at those documents and it's piling them up. So it's saying, these all look like this. These all look like this. Here are the outliers. Here is the standard form. This is what these these documents typically look like. And here are the ones that deviate from that standard. And it's doing that at the document level. It's doing it at the clause level, if you're looking at contracts, or at the paragraph level, if you're looking at different types of documentation. And that then enables the lawyer to analyse those documents much, much faster. Because, of course, if you've got a pile of a thousand documents and Luminance has already told you, these are basically the same, but you want to look at this one, this one and this one because these stand out, they've got something different about them. You're effectively analysing all thousands by looking at about five. And I think I think that's really interesting because a lot of the 
perception, perhaps misconception around the use of technology in the workforce, in the workplace, is that it's looking for something specific. So it's it's formulaic. Um, and, and I think what's what's interesting me about luminance is the ability to uh, to look for the the outlier. It gives you a sense of things as well as that detail. Yeah. Is that something the, the the market is interested in? Well, yes. Uh, once they understand how it works and how to use it, and really the only way that works is to use it live on a real live piece of um, piece of work. That's the only way that anyone really gets to understand what the ROI looks like on that. Typically, we would go into a law firm for the first time and have this conversation and they'd say, right, what I do understand about AI is it's only as good as the question that you ask. And actually, that's not the case for our particular technology. The way that Luminance is designed, that's not the case because you're, you know, uh, you know, fundamentally, you're not asking questions. You're looking at what's there. But one of the, one of the things that, that interests me is, 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 is that debate about ethics, technology, AI, data, is, is that something that real customers in the real world talk to you about or is that an ethereal discussion that things like the zebra project (laughs) deal with uh nope it's absolutely day-to-day for us and i think that's one of the that that's one of the requirements of the pilot really is you they'll go into this saying yes okay it's all very well being faster but (laughs) you know where's the explainability you am i what's my reliance on this technology I think the really reassuring thing for them is you know, your reliance on the technology is exactly the same as it's always been. You, know, you can still go and check. And that's really, really important that you're never more than one step away from the traditional process. So a bit like, you know, okay, back to my accountant using Excel example, accountants don't just run the numbers and then forget about it. They check, they go back and they look at it and think, does that make sense in the real world? Is that, you know, does that seem right or has something gone wrong here? Is there a formula that's not right and go back and retrace their steps? Same thing. And I think that brings brings you back really closely to your principles point, which is technology enables us to do all sorts of things. There are all sorts of possibilities. But unless you've got a reference point in your own organizational principles or regulatory principles, if you're in a regulated industry, it's it's very difficult to know where to, to start and stop with that. Yeah. You're you're working in a in a technology business, an AI business. Luminance was born out of mathematician activity at the University of Cambridge you're not you're not a mathematician how how did you come to luminance so i'd been working for big businesses for a long time doing largely integration projects so actually yeah you know, when you crash two businesses together either you've you know you've acquired another business or you're merging you know somebody's got to do the work of creating the new business out of those constituent parts and that was what I did for a really long time and it's a really interesting thing to do um really really enjoyed it but I did get to a stage where I felt like you know what I keep doing this and it's really rewarding and then I hand over the resulting business to somebody else to run it and I think it would be really fun to do that and then run it myself so I started to articulate this and I think the moment you start to understand something well enough then it happens right so I started to say this to people say I'd like to go and run a startup actually Um, and eventually I said it to the right person um, who was somebody who happened to have had a conversation the day before with some investors who had just put some money into this project coming out of Cambridge which was the three founders of Luminance Um, they'd created this platform that was really for reading and understanding language and then learning using machine learning to learn from the interaction with humans to get you know better all the time um, they just put money into this and wanted somebody who could commercialize it take it to market and you know create the business around it so it was perfect timing 
And where do you start with that sort of commercialization journey? I mean, how how deep did your understanding of the technology have to be before you felt comfortable going out to the world? Uh, you start with the customer. Always start with the end customer. So you know, who is it who's going to make use of this? How are they going to make use of it? What, what does it mean for them? You know, what does that look like for them? How does it impact on other parts of their business? You know, start with that and work backwards every time. And I, and I think one of the, the unique features of of startup businesses is that often the custom community, customer community is the most influential one. It's, it's an ongoing dialogue where they're helping define roadmap um, as well as being a recipient of product or, or service. How, how, did, how, did, how does Luminance collaborate with its customers? That's a really interesting one because obviously the problem with starting with the customer is the faster horse thing which is that the customers don't know what the technology is capable of so if you let customers define your roadmap you'll really constrain the potential of the organisation. So we have to tread a very fine line there, which is working with our customers on real life projects helps us understand how we can improve the product. And actually, I would not go to the team in Cambridge and say, we need to put this widget in here because that's going to that's going to constrain how the product develops. What I do is I go to them with the problem and the solution they'll come back with will be different from what I'm expecting and different from what the customer's expecting. So it's a difficult thing to communicate to a customer who we really value, which is, yes, I know you'd like a widget here, but actually we're not going to give you that. But reassuring them that what we will do is solve the problem and it will be in a more elegant way and actually open up more opportunity as a result. So, so part of your role is being a, a conduit between the market and the, and the dev team uh, who, are looking at, who are looking at what's possible in Roadmap as well as what's a priority. Yeah. And, you know, really articulating that, you know, uh, you know, the whole team now knows this, that the way that you articulate that is not, please put widget here. It's, I need to be able to do this so that I can achieve this and, you know, and, and strip it back down to the articulation of the problem rather than trying to solutionize. It's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. And, and I think being able to successfully bootstrap a business i'm conscious that luminance is now a you know, 100 million plus value business yep. not not necessarily bootstrapping but maybe that's a cultural thing um if you tell me it is bootstrapping but bootstrapping a business is, is the ability to focus on what you're not going to do um and uh, as much as what you are going to do yeah. and uh, how how you know in a leadership role like yours how how much influence can you have over the engineering side of the business is is that something that feels very separate someone else's responsibility or is it something that you feel very much is is your environment to lead i think it's a partnership really you know you've got a team of people who are probably the best in the world at what they do um so i'm not going to tell them how to do it but they're not the ones who are out there sitting in front of the customer who is you know coming up against something that needs to work better so I've got to translate that for them in the best way possible um, and I yeah I, I think yeah we're actually pretty good at that process and in and quite good at saying no uh, which was really hard in the early days so when we had no customers saying no to the first customers prospective customers who came along who were saying to us we'd like to partner with you to be, build this bespoke thing that works like this Saying no to that was really hard when we didn't have anybody else. Um, now we've got sort of getting on for 250 customers. It's a lot easier because we've proved that having one product and really thinking hard about what we don't deliver as much as what we do gives them the best possible outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think yeah, un understanding that re that relationship between, between customer uh, innovation within an organisation and, and your own leadership role is is a fascinating dynamic that 
some people find more time to focus on than others. Um, Where do you find the space to reflect on your impact on the business, what you're doing, where the market's going? Because it strikes me you have a very busy role. On planes, mainly. Planes are a really good waste of time to do that. <laughs> Not so much at the moment, but yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, yeah. I spend a lot of time travelling and uh, definitely do my best strategic thinking at 38,000 feet. Apparently that is a sort of, that is a well-known psychological effect as well. You know, you do actually gain perspective by is that getting right? up it's in the air. Phys- physical perspective and Yes, exactly. It probably says a lot about working in an office in a tall building as well. So you're, you've been involved in... Um, some uh, women in tech groups. I saw that you had been named Woman of the Year, no less, uh, in the Women in IT Excellent of Excellence Awards. So, not sure if that's a, so, so something that you champion or not. But uh, really interested to understand how how um, being a, a woman leader in 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 a in an engineering technology business has has been as an experience, or is it a complete non-issue? So, uh, Woman of the Year. My children are really impressed by that because they just they just tune out the women in IT excellence award bit and think that I'm just woman of the year which is fine I think you know probably for them you know I'd, I'd like to think that was the case uh in terms of being a woman I don't yeah I think I've always taken the view and actually not really thought about it too much that you know what gender you are should have absolutely no bearing on what you're capable of doing in life um so you know just sort of <laughs> blindly sort of you know sort of um, you know sort of ending up in these situations without even considering it um i think that there are some particular kind of structural issues that do get in the way of career progression you know, particularly for women lawyers uh, i think there's a big problem in the legal profession um in the uk uh, which is you, know, you can see it in the numbers that you know something like 60% of new um trainee lawyers coming onto the market every year are women and then you get to partner level and it drops down to something really depressing um and what happens to those women in between um, and I think a lot of that is down to, I mean, I think there's been a lot of focus on the cultural issues, on the boys club. I actually think there are more fundamental structural issues there, broadly along the lines of, if you decide to have a family and you're a woman in a professional role, the chances are you'll marry somebody who's a little bit older than you and therefore a couple of years ahead of you in their career and therefore earning a little bit more, which means that when you have to make a decision about whose career takes the hit, it's going to be yours. Now, I married someone who's slightly younger than me and works in the creative industries. So that's probably had a bearing, right? So I think, you know, understanding that and understanding that that's, I would say, at least as much of an issue as people's attitudes um, gives you a way forward to addressing it. Yeah, I think I totally agree with that. And and I... You know, I think there is a there's a general sense that you know of of course there's no unconscious bias in my organisation, but actually when you look at the structural mm. um, impediments to supporting different working lifestyles and different levels of contribution within something like a law firm, and I don't think it's I don't think it's a law firm specific issue, but 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 actually there's a bunch of really practical things that we need to focus on, not not just. Um, not just lofty conversations about inclusivity and diversity. It's actually these these things are borne out in the, in the practicalities of what of of what organisations are comfortable doing and are prepared to consciously and proactively um, support. And I and I think you know it's, it's one of the things that struck me, um, particularly particularly in the last um, eighteen months, where I think that the dialogue about um, the way the way we work around our broader lives, 
whether that's family or, or, or other um, aspects of uh, of life which are outside work, has I think has in some ways has become less gender specific. I think there's a there's a really interesting dialogue. Um, we we have male partners in in my my business who are um, you know, working part time because they they want to have a different role and relationship with family life, and that's 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 good and supported. But it's the cultural the cultural piece is the way in which we we beat ourselves up. It's the way in which we measure our 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 contribution and our success in high performance organisations. And I think a lot of the lot of the barriers I've seen, and we've seen this particularly with um, with men who who are who are uncomfortable saying I'm going to do things a different way. Um, and I think you know, what what we need to do is is make sure that our organisations can both. Um, Accommodate differing levels of contribution, and and adapt and modify the the, the traditional success measures, yeah. um, because at the end of the day, if you if if you're in a business that measures contribution and success in a linear way by you know, number of hours recorded between a particular piece of time, you know, law law being an extreme yeah. example of that, um, it's very difficult to accommodate something else and everyone to feel good about what's going on. So we kind of need to, to get over ourselves and get over the, the our own um, self perception and actually just get on with some of the as you said some of the practical sides of things. I mean, my sense on that is that you don't feel that that's a particular challenge you've had to overcome, but that perhaps that may may come from your depth of experience across many different industries. I think the attitudinal thing, you know, you know, walking into a room where, you know, you're the only person who looks like you and, you know, speaking in a voice that's at the, on a different kind of has a different tone from everybody else's might mean that nobody hears it. You know, all of those things are not to be underestimated. You know, they're definitely um they're definitely something that you know, needs work. But I think, you know, it's we need to think about the cult, the structural things at the same time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to part one of the podcast. Part two is now available for you to listen to and enjoy. But also, please visit our website at www.thezebraproject.co to find out information on further podcasts and insights and also how to get involved with The Zebra Project. Thank you.